0: Welcome to The Empathy Table. I'm your host, Omar Peterman. It's an honor to welcome Dr. Michelle Ami Reyes to the very first episode of the second season of The Empathy Table. Michelle is a brilliant author, speaker, theologian, and public intellectual. Her work is drawn from her experience as an Indian American and offers a crucial voice in the public narrative of Asian America. Michelle and I talk about our shared identity as Indian Americans and the unique cultural narratives we each hold. We discuss the intersection of faith and ethnicity, and how evangelical churches can move from diverse white congregations to true multi-ethnic community. Michelle also shares more about her book, Becoming All Things, and how she sees a mandate for empathy in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So pull up a chair. Welcome to the Empathy Table. Thanks, Michelle, for being on the Empathy Table with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So much of your work surrounds crafting narrative and naming complex cultural identities. So maybe that's a great place to start. Where do you situate yourself as a writer, as a speaker, as a public intellectual? Um, What narrative do you place yourself within?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I feel like to answer that, I have to tell you a little bit about my own story. So I'm second generation Indian American. I was born in South Carolina, grew up in Minnesota, and now live in Austin, Texas, where my husband and I are church planters. Um, But to take a step back, so my mother, she's a first generation immigrant, um, ethnically 100% Indian, but she was not born in India. She was born and raised in Uganda, Africa. And um, her great-great-grandparents were brought there as forced laborers by the British Empire to build the railroads. And so that's what brought them there. They stayed long enough to have families and settle down. Uh, but then in the 60s, under the dictatorship of President Idi Amin, they were forced to flee as refugees when he was waging a genocide against Indians and other minorities. And over 500,000 people were killed during that time. Uh Eventually, my mom made her way to the United States, uh, and this was shortly after the 1965 Immigration Act, which once again allowed Asians into the country. Uh, And then she married my dad, who is blonde-haired, blue-eyed. He's of British-German heritage. Um, And so part of my story includes the Indian diaspora. You know, the narrative that's been passed down to me from my mother includes immigration and border crossing and refugee status. And then at the same time, my story includes Anglo-American farmers in Delaware from my dad's side uh, who can trace their roots all the way back to the daughters of the American Revolution. And so I have stood at the crossroads of majority and minority culture my, my whole life. Uh, and, and more than that, I'm, I'm, I'm a professor. I'm a folklorist by trade, uh, which isn't a field you see many Indians pursuing. Uh, I'm a church planter, as, as I mentioned, uh, and, and, and even some other things. I grew up playing soccer. I, I love Indian food and Texas barbecue. Right. And, and there's there's more I could say about myself. But the point is that I don't fit into stereotypical categories of what people think or what people often think Indians are. And so when it comes to talking about Indians, I like to say, I am like all Indians. I am like some Indians and I'm like no other Indian. Uh, I'm a unique individual and, and and the same is true. And Amar, I was even thinking about just you and I, like we are both Indians, uh, but our stories and our ways of seeing and moving uh, throughout the world are unique and different. Yeah. And, and so we need to understand this about ourselves, but also others. Uh, And and my hope in sharing my own story and and through my writing and speaking is to encourage folks to, on the one hand, lean into and develop and even celebrate their God-given cultural identities, uh, understand who they are as unique individuals, and at the same time to learn how to see each person they encounter as a unique individual as well. So instead of making assumptions about what a person might like, um, where they're from, what they do, what, you know, what they value. We need to come with a blank slate and and ask open-ended questions like, uh, what's your story? What are your ethnic roots? Um, and give folks the honor of self-definition and of Presenting themselves in whatever way that that they 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 want people to to understand them and then enjoy people simply for who they are. So that's my long answer to 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 what's my story. Yeah,
0: I love that, and I've and I've heard your story before, and I resonate with with so much of it. Like I said, I am adopted, and you were raised in in Minnesota. I was raised in Green Bay, Wisconsin, in a small okay. Polish village called Pulaski, uh, and so I was. An Indian guy playing bass in polka bands, raised by a white family and trying to figure out what it means to be Indian, what it means to fit in. And there's, you know, the common experiences of trying to bring, you know, wearing a, a bindi on my ear, on my forehead, try, <laughs> trying to see how that plays into my own world. Going to Starbucks with friends and like ordering on their menu chai tea. Chai ch- tea. Uh, <laughs> rich, <or> <laughs> tea. tea. <Yeah. laughs> Uh, trying to be like, well, I'm different from you, but it's trying to, and it's trying to find ways to understand my own cultural I- identity through the resources I had available to me, and that often is the in the complex narrative of Asian America and Indian America that doesn't fit into these kind of very neat boxes of what you're supposed to look like, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to act, and be different versus be uh, similar or assimilate to. To culture, and so I appreciate your story and the way that you've articulated. I think you know what so many people have felt and haven't had the words to articulate, or even more, the theological framework to articulate.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, I've grown up my whole life, like I mentioned, at these crossroads, and and so on the one hand, I've I've had so many uh, dominant culture folks throughout my life tell me, you know, you don't you don't look like an Indian, or you don't yeah. look. Like the Indians I know, uh, or, or similar sorts of things, or, oh, you don't, you don't eat naan? Like, I thought that's what all Indians eat, you know? And I'm like, yeah, every once in a while when I go to the restaurant and we decide to be fancy, we order naan. But, you know, my mom is from the state of Gujarat and we eat, you know, rotis and things like that. Uh, so on the one hand, um, I, I, so often I haven't fit into pre-programmed categories of, of, of who Anglo Americans often understand Indians to be. But then on the other hand, when I, so often when I run into Indians who are straight from Mm. India, you know, they also want to let me know you're not a real Indian. (laughs) You're not a true Indian because you're not a hundred percent ethnically Indian. Right. And so, um, for so long, I felt shame because of that. Like there's something wrong with me. I don't fit in anywhere, uh, and 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 I've had to go on this journey from shame to then understanding who God has made me, uh, to then being able to celebrate that and say
0: mm. that
1: that's a good thing. You know, I, I and and the same for you. We we sit in these liminal spaces, but there's divine intent. Yeah in liminality. There's divine intent and in being on the margins and not fitting into the categories. And I truly believe, Amar, that for people like you and I, bicultural, multicultural folks uh, who don't fit into these pre-programmed categories, God is using us as the bridge builders uh, to cross the divide and to lead the path to racial reconciliation. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of beauty and intent in, in living at those intersections of multiple worlds.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. I I remember coming to Chicago for undergrad and meeting Indians who I tell them, you know, I'm, you know, originally from New Delhi. And they'd say, no, you're not. (laughs) Like, you can't be like, I can't. We're just like a such a confusion. And in my response, such a a shame Mm -hmm. to not be able to speak Hindi with them, or for them to not recognize me as part of their culture. You know, I often introduce myself most commonly with my... Americanized version of my name, because that's what I've grown up with. uh, I learned quickly on in the Midwest, it was a a difficult task to try to use an alternate or more authentic pronunciation. But then Mm. I would go to Indian restaurants or meet Indians and use my American name, and they'd be so confused by why I was (laughs) using it. I'll just say it's a a complex world to, to navigate. Latin American theology, Latinx theology talks about living on the hyphen. It's like we have our own hyphen that we, that we kind of exist on. And you're right, it's a, it's a beautiful space to minister within that bridges two worlds together. In a, in a world that's increasingly tribalistic and, and polarizing, uh, we don't necessarily have the luxury of that. We sit between worlds by virtue of, of our ethnicity and our culture and, and even our names.
1: Amen. Amen. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs>
0: On the same topic of, of stories, we think at IDEOS and at the Center for Empathy in Christian and Public Life that cultivating empathy often begins with stories and stories turn into dialogue and dialogue eventually leads to action and more specifically self-sacrificing action, giving of oneself and making space in oneself for, for the other, whatever the other looks like. But what is the story that you hope to tell through your writing and your research and your ministry. You talked about where your story has originated from, but where do you believe your story is going?
1: It's a great question. I, I think in many questions that it's it's like leaning into like what is the purpose of your yeah. life? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, this is this is deep. Uh, but I I I think that for me, my heart being a church planter and and now. Uh, you know, having the title of scholar in residence, uh, within my church as well. My heart is for the church. My heart is to equip, inspire, resource the church. And so, um, you know, when I, when I share my story, I, my, my first demographic i mean i'm hoping anyone will hear and listen right like when we share our stories we like anyone who listens we're like praise god but you know when i share my stories i I have the intent of speaking to the church Mm. um and my heart is for for the church to actually live into the beautiful biblical multi-ethnic body of christ that we have always intended to be um and I talk about this a little bit in my book. In chapter one, I try to trace a theology of of, of culture and 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 the multicultural body of Christ from Genesis through Revelation. And mm. I think it's incredibly powerful to see in Revelation seven nine that there are people of all different tribes, tongues, nations around the throne of God worshiping. It's a multi ethnic, multicultural body of Christ. Yeah. And this is so important because so often today people talk about you know. They ha- they highlight spiritual identities to the detriment of all else, and 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 we think that you know we should only be focusing on the fact that we're one in Christ, and the cultural identities are just part of some sort of secular agenda. Uh, we shouldn't be making too big a deal about culture, um, and 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 even that that well intentioned comment of like, I don't see color. I just see you. Mm, (laughs) Right. And I'm like, okay, if you don't see color, you don't fully see me actually. Uh, because, because I've lived my whole life in this brown skin body. I've experienced racism because of my brown skin. Um, I've had doors closed and, 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 and so on and so forth because of my brown skin. Right. And so to say, I don't see color means I don't see your pain. Mm. Uh, first of all and so i think when i'm sharing my stories i do share stories of pain but it's not with the intent of trying to burn down the church i am not on the bandwagon of 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 cancel culture when it comes to the church and leaving loud and burning everything down um you know behind me and i know that's probably not a very popular thing to say but i'm i am here because i believe in the body of Christ, and I believe mm. in God's heart for the church. Um, and 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 people are messy, and our history is messy, and our lives are messy. Um, but my intent is to continue to get people to the table together, majority and minority, black, brown, and white, to continue to get people to, as as you said, hear each other's stories. Um, because that proximity is what's going to lead to empathy, and yeah. Lord willing, that empathy is going to lead to real changed action, both at the individual and systemic level. Um, and so, I'm hoping to see that within pastors, within congregations, and to not just throw it in people's faces and say, "Okay, you've just screwed up," and and now you all need to feel guilty, and you know we're just gonna like throw you out. I think that's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? Yeah. Um, but how can we lovingly invite people to a better way I think that's the pastoral voice that's the biblical voice um, and so that's my long way of saying that my heart is for the church and these stories are for the church to grow to wrestle with some of the 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 sins of its past right the the things yeah. that we're we we're, we're, we're doing wrong um, but for the sake of growing and 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 being stronger as a result
0: and that brings up a uh... A really good point of talking about the church. I mean, you know, you hold the, the you know, coveted position of being a reverend doctor, holding <laughs> together an emphasis on the church and practically serving people on the ground in local communities, but also having a foot in the academy and being theologically trained. And that brings a lot of questions to my mind, uh, but one that I think is, is pertinent, especially for our, for our conversation today, is that there's a push for multi-ethnic churches, for this idea of a multi-ethnic church um, that doesn't fully understand what it actually means to be multi-ethnic or even more multicultural, which is a whole different thing in itself. And so we get these predominantly white, often evangelical churches who have a sprinkling of minority or we might say minoritized people in the pews and they call it good and they say this is all we need to do rather than actually making power changing and equity shaping decisions uh, that put people with minoritized or minority perspectives in positions to make meaningful decisions within a church body. And so as a church planter, what steps have you taken to not fall into this pattern? But as well, what advice might you have for Christian leaders who really do want to move their churches from, quote unquote, diverse white evangelical churches to true multi-ethnic or multicultural worshiping communities?
1: That's good. That's really good. Well, first, I want to add a caveat because there are multicultural, multi-ethnic churches that are doing the yeah. work. Um, and and I, I, I want to share some examples from my own church, uh, Hope Community Church. But before I do so, I want to share two statistics. And the first is um, from Michael Emerson, sociologist and, and co-author of Divide by Faith, where he talks about how 70% of multi-ethnic churches are still led by a white male pastor. Mm. Uh, and I'll, I'll get back to that Statistic in a moment, but the second statistic, which uh, Dr. Corey Edwards shared uh, recently in, a, in, in an article for Christian Today, was she was basically arguing in many ways that the multicultural church experiment has failed. Yeah. And she argued that multi ethnic churches are diverse only to the extent that its white congregants are comfortable. And so you put these two statistics together and it reveals two problems. The first is the issue of all white male leadership in supposedly multi-ethnic churches. And then the second is the problem of white comfortability. Mm-hmm. So I I want to argue that multi-ethnic churches, and I'm, I'm speaking as an Indian American, as an Asian American here, um, th- multi-ethnic churches need to receive the fuller blessing of asian americans in in multi-ethnic churches today there is still only four percent that are led by an asian pastor Hmm. like let that sink in that's crazy and even um you know with my book that just came out, becoming all things it's it's been largely positive feedback which i've been grateful for but so many people have said you know, I'm loving your book, and this is the first time I've ever read something by an Asian-American woman. Mm. We are not, in our country, we are not used to sitting under the teaching of Asian voices. Uh, And that includes within the church. And so how do we receive the fuller blessing of Asian Americans, particularly within multi-ethnic churches? Well, first, you need Asians in your church. (laughs) And uh, at at our church, Hope Community Church, we value the beauty of each ethnicity. Uh, Many Asian families actually have come to our church this past year. And the resounding comment has been that they didn't feel seen or valued in their former church, which is Very sad to hear because this past year we have seen a startling rise in anti-Asian racism. Uh, But but not only that, many of them didn't hear their pastors uh, say anything about the March 16th Atlanta massacre Mm. in which six Asian women were killed. Uh, And so whether it's Asian Americans or or African Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans, or, or so on, uh, we need to make people of color feel valued through preaching. First of all, we need to hear the pastor highlighting ethnicity in the sermon text uh, and on a regular basis. You know, twice a year is going to teach congregants that ethnicity and culture are marginal topics within the text yeah. and not worth real serious um, you know, exegesis, if, if you will. Uh, so regular highlighting of ethnicity and culture in the text and making connections to our present realities, as well as calling out racism of all kinds from the pulpit. Uh, not only that, but we need racially conscious uh, Asians in leadership, both both men and women who can help guide racially conscious discipleship and spiritual formation. So this speaks at the heart of multiple People of color and leadership uh, who are racially conscious, who are not tokenized, but actually have real um, decision-making power and are directing strategy in the church. Um, and then as a church, you know, particularly when it comes to Asian Americans, you should read the scripture text hmm. and pray in different Asian languages and have Asians leading up front in worship in styles that reflect their cultures, yeah. not just... That tokenized Asian singer who's singing hill songs yes. <laughs> or you know, some sort of CCM, yes. right? Uh, so, if we truly want to receive the fuller blessing of Asian Americans, uh, among other g- minority groups, we must believe that each culture reflects God's image. And the more we see and acknowledge these different cultures, the more we see anew who God is. And we do that by diversifying our leadership. Uh, and 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 by w- being willing to sit in the discomfort, the different cultural expressions and different um, ways of culturally worshiping God come together, mm. because it will be uncomfortable. Uh, and we will only be able to break through that barrier of, of of moving towards true multiculturalism in our churches, if we can sit in that discomfort and be willing to be taught, by voices of color that we're not used to being taught by.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's so many good things in there that to talk about Corey Edwards book, especially. um, I mean, she calls this vision an elusive dream and it is a dream, but I think it's within our grasp. I think it's attainable. Amen. And, you know, this perhaps gets to the other half of your Reverend doctor title and that's uh, (laughs) the Academy. And, you know, Christian leaders, especially pastors who are trained in specific institutions that tell you not to care about race, that to emphasize or read or understand race as present in the New Testament and in in the Hebrew Bible is to bring your presuppositions and your particularities into the text in a way that corrupts it from its original meaning, as if that those issues of race and ethnicity are not present already in the text. Andrew Root, who's a, a Princeton Seminary grad. He has a three-part series engaging with Charles Taylor's work, The Secular Age, and his, re- his most recent book is The Congregation in a Secular Age. And he really says that, you know, pastors are, have more resources than ever before available to them. What they lack in is confidence that they can actually make a meaningful change in their community and that their yeah. voice can stand out even in their local community, even in their small congregations to actually make a change. Right. And so, perhaps for pastors who are listening to this, who feel that way, who feel like they have plenty of resources, but they don't have the confidence that any actions that they take will matter, or that they'll just fail, that they'll they'll fall flat, that no one will attend, that they'll receive too much pushback, or that there's too much at stake for them in their congregation and their in their ministries of various sizes. What advice or, or comments would you have for for those folks?
1: Yeah, no, that's good. Well. Uh, I, f- I feel like you made two really, really good points. So I want to address both of them. And the first is that we do need to understand and and believe in a theology of race in scripture. Mm. Um, I was very formed early on by J. Daniel Hayes as a theology of race. It's an IVP academic book. Um, and, you know, he traces from Genesis to Revelation about the ways in which uh, we have seen racial tensions and also God's heart for racial reconciliation, if you will. Um, and, you know, once you begin to actually see ethnicity and culture and race mapped out in scripture, you you can't help but notice the ways in which people continue to fight and war <laughs> against each other, create these um, value systems, systems of hierarchy of who's superior, who's inferior. Um, it's, it's all throughout the gospels. I mean, I even think about, uh, you know, that that time when jesus is trying to go to a samaritan village and the samaritans refuse to receive him and the disciples are like all right lord let's let's rain down fire and let's just destroy (laughs) this entire village what's happening is racial tension these are two different Mm. ethnic groups who are warring against each other refusing to welcome each other and and uh you know they're they're these disciples, the disciples of Jesus, are literally willing to murder <laughs> these uh, people mm. for it. I mean, and Jesus, of course, says, "No, no, there's a better way." I'm, and, and Jesus speaks peace into the midst of racial tension. And so, um, if 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 anybody feels like the Bible has nothing to say about race, they have. I would say we need to talk about your education. <laughs> and <laughs> actually, I mean, that's a really good point is we need to do seminary different. We need to do education hmm. different, uh, you know, in terms of educational formation of pastors and Christian leaders, because so often we are formed by... Um, Anglo-American theology, right? French-Swiss <laughs> Swiss theology, right? When we talk about Calvinism, uh, this is French-Swiss theology. We need to actually understand its social location. Um, but when we look at global Christianity, theology from the global South, um, you know, even, you know... Huge uh, bigwigs in the faith, like Rene Padilla, and and, and his mm. uh, spearheading of Integral Mission, um, and and the ways in which uh, the gospel and justice and race all come together. We realize, oh, we have had a limited in in our North American evangelical context. We have. We have tied our hands behind our backs and had a very limited understanding of of these sorts of theological categories, but that's not so in, in other parts of the world. So we have a lot to learn from hmm. other people of, of, and Christians of color. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, you know, I've talked with so many pastors and Christian leaders this last year who have grown in their racial consciousness and praise God for that. Um, there's... You know, it's sad, but so many people that Aaron and I have talked to pre-May 25th of last year did not believe that racism was a problem in our country, did not believe mm. that racial tension was was real, that racial inequity was real. And then the death of George Floyd happened, and all of a sudden, it was like God worked in people's hearts and minds, and those same people have come back to us and said, I I now better understand at least the concept that racism is real and that racism exists and these are real problems in their country. And while that's incredible, there is this knee-jerk reaction, like, okay, now I have to fix everything. (laughs) And we have this like white savior mentality of like, okay, now that I know that this problem exists, I'm going to come in and fix it all. Um, And the reality is we just can't do that, particularly if you are from the dominant culture. And so this is, I love what IDOS is doing. I love this this, um, push towards empathy and stories because that's exactly what we need to be doing right now. Um, And and so my question is, who are you listening to? Who are you talking to? Who are you rubbing shoulders with? Um, And I'll even give the example of our own church, Hope Community Church in East Austin. Like my husband grew up in East Austin. He knows this community. It's a disadvantaged, poor, black and brown community. He grew up single mom, government housing. Um, So in many ways, Aaron does know the needs of this community, but even still, he's just one individual. And for our church, we make it a priority to build relationships with the people in government housing around where Mm -hmm. we meet as a church, uh, which requires weekly uh, knocking on people's doors and praying with them, asking them, you know, what are your needs so that we can both... Tell them about Jesus, but then also find out. Oh, okay, this person needs rent money, or this person needs groceries. Yeah, um, and because we had relationships, because we have relationships with real people in the community, when when there are times of crisis, we go to them and ask them, "What do you need right now?" Like when there was a winter storm that just wiped out Austin and, and a lot of Texas in February we were asking people on the ground, what do you need? Whether it was blankets or um, heaters or just basic supplies, because too often we try to come in thinking we know what people need. (laughs) And and the reality is so often they're going to turn us away and say, we don't need that. Like, why are you offering this to us? This is not going to help us at all. So real people and real stories should dictate our relief efforts, our justice initiatives—we can't just be creating these out of a, a vacuum or out of some sort of intellectual, theoretical experiment. Um, and so, for for pastors and Christian leaders trying to figure out what's the next step, how do I do this well? Let real people and real communities uh, direct your efforts, and then trust that God will be fruitful and 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 productive and faithful through that. Um, So there it is. That's my answer.
0: (laughs) Incredible. There's so much there. You, as I was listening, touched on basically what we at the CECPL are calling the way of empathy that really is modeled after the life and ministry of Jesus. And of course, the teachings of scripture that really say empathy begins with attention, paying attention to those around us who are different. Uh, Attention then leads us into closer proximity to those people and building relationships, uh, having conversations, hearing stories which ultimately cultivates in us humility that we aren't saviors, that we do need, uh, we need to rely on one another and lean on one another, ultimately lean on, lean on the Lord. And then that leads to sacrifice, to being able to enter into the space of the other, those who are different from us with the full humility that, you know, God has made us in a great diversity that, you know, to go back to not a French or Swiss, but Dutch theologian Herman bavink You know, and there's a, a collective bearing of the Imago Dei mm. that one people or place cannot contain the fullness of God's image-bearing property on on mankind. But when we're in community and we read from our particularities, and you know, we can have. We can have Carl Bart, who says God is transcendent. We can have Trina Lee, who says God's speaking to me. And we can have Justo Gonzalez, who says God is found on the margins of society mm-hmm. and the board, you know, he's in Galilee. Uh, and we bring all of these perspectives together, and now we have a fuller right. image of who God is.
1: That's right.
0: By embracing particularity within community, with being able to not emphasize God only as liberator, but also God as marginalized, also God as imminent also God goddess transcendent uh and that only happens when we can be in relationship with one another and that's definitely you're right that needs to happen at a local ecclesial level not just a lofty theological one
1: amen amen and our theology should be born
0: <laughs> from <Yes>. the streets <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> yeah And this goes back to also what we were talking about a bit earlier, but that there is a perhaps stereotypical, but generic public image of what Asian America looks like. And it often perpetuates and sits within these myths of being a model minority or being a perpetual foreigner. And so, and ultimately it renders by making these simplistic stories, it renders the stories and often the tragic deaths and violence against Asian Americans in our communities, forgotten, quickly forgotten. I wonder how the powerful, complex, and nuanced stories that you and I hold that many other Asian Americans hold can help rewrite this public narrative. Uh, And not every Asian American is a writer or a speaker or has the platform to do that. But what do you think Asian Americans who live on the hyphen, who sit in this in-between space, who are tweeners, can elevate their own stories in these dialogues, in these conversations, to be able to rewrite and reshape what the perception of Asian America is in our country.
1: Yeah. I love that you asked this question, and I love that you're highlighting second-gen immigrants, because this is actually a really important... um, element to this story is that that there are huge differences between first gen and second gen immigrants mm. and we have different priorities you know folks like my mom you know our, our parents age they they came into this country they saw the racism that african americans were experiencing and their response was okay we just have to keep our head down you know not shake the boat uh, don't challenge the status quo And, um, I saw this played out even after nine 11, Hmm. uh, you know, it's crazy. The, the amount of uh, South Asian racism that escalated after, after nine 11. And for so many of us, a second gen watching our parents say nothing and do nothing. Right. You know, people's, people's cars are being keyed and, and, and houses are being vandalized and, and, and many people just being called terrorists. I, I remember my classmates asking me if I was a terrorist, um, but this racism that our parents endured has impacted their their experience and their understanding of how to make their way through through the world. Whereas second-generation immigrants, on the other hand, we were born in the U.S., and that changes everything. And I love the way Hasan Minhaj uh, puts it uh, yes. you know, in, in, in Homecoming. He says, I was born here, and I have the audacity of equality. And so mm. as second-generation immigrants, we prioritize belonging and and equality in a way that our parents don't, um, and and it's one of our biggest differences, which is not necessarily a right versus wrong. It's just different, and mm. and that's okay. And we have to be careful not to demonize our parents uh, because their realities are so different than than ours. But uh, you brought up the issue of the model minority myth and the perpetual foreigner, and I want to say a word at first about. My, my, the model minority myth um, Because in both of them They play Against Asian Americans People often think Well aren't these Well a particular my, Model minority Like isn't this a good You know mm. Stereotype right Like I'm, I'm saying that you're smart Like why are you offended By this <laughs> and, right um, I think that in, One In the midst of Of this past year And rising Anti-Asian racism We've been told That our feelings About anti-Asian Incidents Are minor you know how could we have anything valid to say about race when we are supposedly accepted by American society uh, as 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 model minorities? And so, and and the model minority myth has led to people believing that the racism and violence we're experiencing are just uh, isolated incidents. You know that they're not mm. part of a longer that they're not just links in a longer chain of of anti Asian history. Um, now the model minority. That phrase was coined in the 1960s by a white journalist, and it perpetuates the belief mm. that Asian Americans are somehow racially smarter or racially more successful than other minority groups. And the problem with this, and I love the way that law professor Frank Wu, who's also the author of Yellow, uh, ex- explains it, is that this is—it's not a compliment. It's just false flattery mm. uh, because it's used to insult other people of color. This this term arose during the civil rights era, and it was it was used to pit Asian-Americans against African-Americans. And, and, and the saying went basically, you know, if Asians can succeed, then why can't black people? Right. Um, you know, why can't Latinos? And this is how Asians are used as a wedge between white people and other minorities. So um, how do we combat the perpetual foreigner syndrome? How do we combat the model minority myth, particularly a second generation uh, Asian-Americans who Uh, want to raise our voices and want to share our stories. I think, one, we need to grow in our racial consciousness. Hmm. I think particularly for us as Christians, but I think this is true across the board. Many of us have stayed white proximate, and we have tried to fly under the radar. uh, And because of that, we really haven't developed our own racial consciousness. We need to understand who we are and our own history. And there's education that needs to go into that. Um, Many of us, you know, in schools... Asian American history isn't taught. We need to go and learn our own history. Uh, And second, we need to think through ways that we can actively deconstruct these myths, actively deconstruct the model minority myth in particular. Um, And in this narrative where Asians are leveraged against other minority groups, we need to engage in, and I love this phrase, model minority mutiny. It's a phrase Mm. that was coined by Change Lab Soya Young uh, and Scott Nagakawa. And it's a hard thing to ask, but it, it goes to your question of, of raising our voices, sharing our stories, letting people know, hey, this is what we're experiencing. Even in my book, um, people keep reaching out and they're like, wow, I had no idea that you'd gone through this. Or I had no idea that Indian Americans or Asian Americans experience these sorts of things in our country. Like people don't mm. know. Yeah. So I think part of how we bring change is through... Shifting and flipping the narrative, and we have to actually share some of these painful experiences, bring them into the light, so we can deconstruct these these myths. So I think uh, beyond that, some of us have even fed into these stereotypic images. and uh, and so I think it really is going to require all of us as asian americans to 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 work to undo these things together,
0: yeah, absolutely. And you're right. it's it's a lot easier to be white proximate to kind of indirectly accept these myths and take the path of really least resistance. We're able to survive. We're able to, you know, in some ways find our own way to flourish within someone else's really someone else's construction. We're trying to stake our little home on someone else's property, someone else's world um, that ultimately is going to hinder us because they will then control what comes outside of our walls and what we're able to really say, say and do. And so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it would be it would be a disservice to not explicitly mention your book in our time. And so, because it is, yeah, it is excellent. And like you said, it's resonated with with so many people, including myself, and uh, will I'm sure continue to resonate and make an impact across local churches across our country. But you you draw the title of the book, Becoming All Things, from 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And studying both at a conservative Bible college and then now here at Princeton Seminary, mm-hmm. I've heard this passage used in very different ways, some to extremely liberating means, uh, being able to tear down walls of, of division and hostility, but also I know that this passage has been used specifically by people trying to keep separated, uh, trying to foster polarization, uh, even foster dehumanization. And so without, without spoiling the entire synopsis of your book, could you share what you think, what you understand Paul to be saying when he says he is willing to become all things, but even more, perhaps what is Paul not saying? And I hear the language of empathy in reading in reading Paul in this way, explicitly. And so perhaps alongside what you think Paul means, and it does not mean by this, where do you see empathy or the performance or the practice of empathy in this passage?
1: That's good. That's good. And on a side note, what you said, I think is true for any passage of scripture, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> that people have uh, utilized, wielded, um, uh, even as tools of oppression, different, different passages. So it is important to... Um, understand Paul in his context. And I think when we look at the life of Paul, we see a man who is uh, on the move, a, a man who is traveling to different uh, towns and cities and countries and people groups. And what's amazing is how often he he changes uh, how he talks, even what he emphasizes in terms of theological issues, um, cultural uh, issues at play. Uh, and, and not only that, not only is he shifting his language and the topics that he addresses, but we see at one point uh, to connect with certain Jews in Jerusalem, he shaves his head. Mm. Um, he eats different foods with different you know, cultural groups and more and and what's crazy is that i think a lot of times we as christians we could look into that and think oh paul is just compromising himself you know paul's mm-hmm. compromising his his theological views, uh, he's not staying firm <laughs> to the gospel. Uh, it, 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 almost looks weak in a sense, right? Yeah. And Paul's even accused of being weak at different times, you know, but particularly by the leads. they say, you know, why can't you be more eloquent or why can't you be more firm on this? Um, and, and even for example, like the issue of circumcision, right? Like with, right. with, uh, with, uh, with with some folks, he encourages them, yes, you need to be circumcised because of the people group that they're seeking to, to, to win for the gospel. And for someone else, he says, no, you don't need to be circumcised. Uh, and so you see Paul in his life constantly shifting, adapting, changing who he is, how he presents himself, how he engages with people for the sake of the gospel. And so when you come to 1 Corinthians 9, and he says, "I become like a Jew to win the Jews, uh, and and I became like those not under the law, meaning meaning Gentiles, to win those not under the law. And I became all things to all people for the sake of the gospel." You see, a man who is committed, as you said, to an empathetic um, mode of engaging people and 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 becoming all things. I, I mentioned this in the book. It's not. This is not code for for like stealing people's lifestyles or uh, appropriating other people's cultures. By no means is this sort of limited to some sort of outward expression like, okay, I, I, I want to connect with Mexicans. So now I'm going to wear a sombrero and eat tacos. And like, that's mm. not <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> message of the, the, the text. Rather, it's a, a, a worldview shift. It's this mm. idea to see each person as a unique individual and to understand how they how they view the world, what their life is like, how they think, how they feel, and learning to make those slight changes and slight adaptations to connect with them in their context. Um, it requires a huge amount of empathy, like you mentioned, and humility. Um, and so I think this is a wonderful challenge for us. And I, I share this even in my introduction, that growing up, I felt like a chameleon, uh, you know, I felt like just trying to fit in for survival methods. Uh, I, I was constantly adapting who I was changing my, my speech and my behavior, Mm -hmm. even how I dressed, um, more so, so that my classmates wouldn't shame me or, you know, so that maybe I'd be invited to that party or, or so that I'd, you know, fit in or somebody would sit with me at the lunch table. And, and, um, you know, what I learned growing up is that that very thing that I was forced to do can actually be a gift. Um, Not when we're doing it out of shame or um, in an oppressive way. I think it's important as you were asking, what does this not mean for historically disempowered people? This does not mean that we quote code switch
0: Mm. where we
1: hide our God given cultural identities um, because uh, out of shame on the one hand we need to be uh, proud of who God has made us and to know that the way that God has shaped our cultural identity reflects his image in the world. And yet at the same time, be willing to wade into those waters to connect with folks for the sake of the gospel. And so Mm. um, I think it's a good challenge for us today because, you know, we can be so rigid on everything <laughs> I, like Christians are always like, you know, in-house fighting about everything, mm. whether it's political views, whether it's uh, what you're supposed to eat or not drink, uh, where you're supposed to go, um, what theological issues are the most important, which theological hills to die on and which not to. And and I think um, what we see is that the lot of the law of Christ is far broader mm. and far more, open-handed than we often make it to be there were certain things that jesus refused to do and if jesus refused to do it we should not do those things either Mm. but outside of that there was a lot of things jesus did that angered the religious elites of the day there was a lot of things that he did that the pharisees and the sadducees were enraged about and i think about how In our context today, there are things that we have even established as status quo within North American evangelical Christianity that we need to deconstruct for the sake of loving our neighbor fully and and loving them well.
0: I love the emphasis that you take that in order to understand what Paul is saying here, look at Paul's life and look at his ministry and look look at what he did and look at what Jesus did and look at what the rest of the disciples did uh, and the narrative of the New Testament that uh, yeah, embraces, like we talked about, embraces particularity. And even more than embraces, finds God in particular places. I think of, you know, Paul's, the f- very famous story of Paul going to Athens, waiting for some of his friends, and the Spirit compels him to go have conversations with these philosophers, and yeah. ultimately leads him before the Oropagate, uh, debating and trying to defend his faith, basically, before these this council of you know, wise philosophers. And Paul doesn't say, if you want to become a Christian, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to come to Jerusalem and you need to do this and that. He says, no, he's already here. God is already here. He's You've made an altar to him and you don't even know it. Mm. And so, and that's really the gospel proclamation we find in the New Testament, I think, is that God is found in different peoples and places. yes. And that, that's why we can become all things to all people, because to do that is not to sacrifice our faith. It's not to leave where God is to go somewhere else. It is to find God in, in a means of holy curiosity, find God among different peoples and places, manifest in different ways, the Spirit actively at work in different communities uh, all the time, always acting and always moving.
1: Yeah, amen.
0: That leads to uh, the last question that I have for you. What is your hope for the future of Christianity in America? And what does faithful Christian witness look like to you?
1: It's another great and just... Big question. But what is, what is my hope for the future of Christianity? I love it. Um, I would say this. My hope is that, and I'm, I'll speak specifically for North American evangelical Christianity. Mm-hmm. My hope is that we regain a robust understanding of the gospel. Um we have such an anemic understanding of soteriology, for example, in the United States.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: and and a mantra that I am tired of hearing, particularly in, over this past year, is, you know, just preach the gospel uh, in, in the yes. wake of racial tragedies, uh, in, in the wake of the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, rising anti-Asian racism. Over and again, we are hearing churches say, we just need to preach the gospel. And the idea is, if only... We can get people to believe in Jesus, you know. If, if if only people will be saved, then somehow things like racism will be cured, <laughs> or somehow things like these systemic issues and these injustices will go away. Mm. And this is problematic because throughout human history, it has been Christians who have perpetuated racism. It has yeah. been Christians that have created systemic injustices. So mm. this. This logic is 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 false. That if people believe in Jesus, um, their hearts will be transformed to such an extent that they will no longer uh, commit or perpetuate uh, racist <laughs> ideologies. And so. Uh, you know, we have to come back to the scriptures. We have to come back to this understanding of, of the gospel, to understand how justice and gospel are synonymous in mm-hmm. many ways. And we see this in 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 Mark chapter one in the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus' in-breaking kingdom. You know, he enters the scene of human history and yes, on the one hand, he says, Repent and confess, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and he is speaking. Spiritually to people and and after their hearts, and yet at the same time, he's healing people physically. He's bringing people back into society. He is declaring that every single person has the right to good health and the right to equal, uh, you know, treatment uh, and 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 to enjoy these resources within society. And so there is this restorative work at play yeah. within the gospel. And if people, you know, if you're uncomfortable with the term social justice, we can use a, a more historically orthodox term, social righteousness, right? Mm. Uh, uh, yes. That is after this threefold restoration. Um, and, and we see this in, in in the early church. We see this also, uh, you know, Acts chapters two through four, for example, but we also see this in different ways through the global South. Um even in in, in in Asia, for example, that that people Christians of, of Christians around the world are pursuing restorative justice, uh, not just punitive justice, if mm. you will. Yeah. Uh, that you know we can hold both in balance uh, and seek a threefold restoration of of, of relationships between God and man, uh, but also. Relationships between humans and humans, uh, and then also restoration between humans and nature or and our environment, which on the one hand means nature, but on the other hand refers to systems. Like
0: yeah, Jesus, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Jesus addresses all of that in his gospel proclamation, and so um, I would love to see North American evangelical Christianity regain this robust understanding of the gospel. Um, you know, and when people tell you know when people criticize me or our church or the work that we're doing and say, you just need to, you know, focus on the gospel. My answer is I am, <laughs> I am focusing on the gospel and I invite you to do the same because, mm, uh, Jesus sure. is after restorative work. And that means caring for the whole person, physical, spiritual, emotional, social. Um, and I, my hope is that we can re- recapture that as, as, as the church in America today.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Michelle, for your wisdom and insight and and scholarship and your excellent book. It was an honor to be able to talk with you today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Likewise.
0: Thanks for joining us here at the Empathy Table, a production of the IDEO Center for Empathy in Christian and Public Life. The CECPL provides resources for Christians to engage faithfully, critically, and consistently with the complex issues of our world today through the values of empathy, intellectual humility, and hospitality. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and visit us at idios.is CECPL.